Hello, everybody. That's Shift M Podcast. Uh, our next episode, it's number 10, and we have a guest today. It's uh, Johanna uh, Rothman. Did I pronounce it right? Johanna? You did. Yes, okay. thank you. That's what you said on one of your videos, though. That's why. <clears throat> that's how I got it. <laughs> uh, I'm actually your reader, so I, I can't say I read everything, but time to time I check your blog, and I like it. And that's probably going to be a problem today because I, I agree with most of the things you're saying, but to make it fun, interesting today, I will try to disagree, and then and that will <laughs> provoke you for you know proving me wrong, and that will. Uh, to, to make the discussion more interesting. So uh, the microphone to you. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? Oh, sure. I'm Johanna Rothman. I'm, I, I like to say I'm known as the pragmatic manager. I provide very frank advice for your tough problems. I'm an expert in project management and um, deliverable-based planning, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. That's, I think that that's good enough. You also write books and blogs and articles. I do. That's how I know you. <laughs> yeah, I've written over 10 books. I've written thousands of blog posts, uh, hundreds of articles. I, I'm not counting them anymore because it's, it's too hard to count. Yeah, but um, today I will ask you questions mostly about, uh, not in general about management, but more about hiring and how we can do it better. You have a okay. book about that, Hiring Geeks That Fit. That's the title, right? Yes. And yes. That's, that's what the likes, I mean, what articles they read from your blog, most of them. So um, the first question, what do you think is, can you list them or what do you think are the main problems with hiring process, which we have right now in the, in the industry? Can you list them or say something about what bothers you? Sure. So the... Um, the first thing I see is that hiring managers or the applicant tracking system or HR, somebody wants all kinds of stuff. It's a shopping list. It's a laundry list. It, it's not a human that they're looking for. So that's, that, I mean, you have to be superhuman to be able to meet any on all of the possibilities in a job description. That's just crazy. So that's the first problem I see. The second problem I see is that we hire for technical skills and we don't do such a good job of that. I, more on that later. But we fire for interpersonal skills. And so we need to figure out how do we assess interpersonal skills. And the, the third thing I see is that how people actually look for technical skills it's really kind of crazy. Um, they have all these auditions and tests and all kinds of stuff. Instead of actually trying to figure out a way to have a conversation with a person and a short audition to make sure that the person really can do the technical work that they need. So let me start with the last one. So you're saying that we are being too formal with our candidates. Well, I'm saying that we have too many barriers before we have the first conversation. Uh -huh. So one of my clients actually has a 45-minute um, assessment that they want every single candidate to fill out before they have even a phone screen. I mean, who has 45 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> so, so by the time you take out all the really good people who are not going to spend 45 minutes with you, 
Um, what are you left with? You're left with people who cannot do the work. So, and we also, right now in the States, we have um, many areas where there is very low unemployment. So if you have low unemployment, why would you put up a barrier to getting the best possible people? I don't get it. Why do you think they're doing that? They're stupid or what? No, no, people are not stupid. Um, back when we had a lot of unemployment, everybody applied for everything. So there were people who had none of the necessary um, qualifications applying for any kind of a job because they needed a job. And so a lot of people put these barriers into place to make sure that they actually had um, people with some of the right skills. And now, uh, I'm not so sure that the barriers worked in any case, but now uh, we really do not have that problem. We have the other problem. I mean, hiring goes through these changes all the time. So you have to be ready for that. And, and if you're looking for strangers, Right, if you're looking for people outside of your normal hiring um, pool, which I, I do recommend that you do that, then I think it's really important to say, how can we find the best people but not um, put so many barriers in place before we even have a conversation with them? Maybe they're afraid that if they open the, the door, if they, they remove the barriers, then they will have so many candidates, so many resumes coming in that they will be just doing, all they will be doing is just interviewing them all the time. Maybe that's well, that's the value of a phone screen. So um, there's no reason everyone on the team can't phone screen people. It does not have to be just the hiring manager. I mean, if you, if you put together a job analysis, which I do recommend, and you create a phone, screens, a phone screen script that I do recommend, then if you, have a, if you have five people on the team, all five people can be phone screening people all the time. And so <laughs> my husband was teasing me the other day. Um, he used to listen to my phone screens at night. And I, I would call five or six people at night and do a phone screen. And the reason I could call five or six people at night is because I had elimination questions at the beginning of my phone screen. I didn't sell the job. I said, this is Johanna. Is this still a good time to talk? Yes, it is. Okay, tell me. And at the time, I was looking for embedded systems people. I needed to know if they had C++ and Unix experience. And mm -hmm. I said, how many years of C++ do you have? And if they said zero or one, I might ask one more question, but that was the minimum for the job, right? Mm -hmm. So I needed people with enough experience so that their OO skills would be sufficient. I, I would then ask about Unix experience because I really need to understand, could they actually code and talk to the operating system? If they didn't, if they couldn't do that, they were not right for me. So I, I could go through five or 10 people on a, on a given night and only have to talk in depth to two or three. Mm -hmm. Maybe companies think that it's 
it's kind of not really serious. It will look not serious, not professional if they don't, you know, put a huge form in front of every candidate and just make a phone call. Because like you're just explaining, you're just picking up the phone and calling them, you personally. It doesn't look like a huge enterprise, you know. It looks like no. more like a startup hiring process. <laughs> well, and, and the interesting thing there is that I was able to make connections with people on a human level. So even if they were not right for me, I stayed in contact with a bunch of them. I got them jobs at other companies. They sent me candidates. Uh-huh. I developed a relationship with people and I I found that developing a relationship was a lot more important than whether or not they were right for this particular job. So I have people in my personal network, and let's not talk about LinkedIn numbers, but mm-hmm. in my personal network, people I have known for many years, which is the benefit of having gray hair, um, and I I stay in touch with them. and. Uh, while they might not have been good for one position at one company, we've stayed in touch and I've helped them get jobs in other places. So, and they have helped me get candidates. So uh, you can try and do the, uh, the non-personal stuff, but it doesn't work because hiring is all about a relationship that you build with a candidate from the very first day. So why would you screw that up? Well, it makes sense, but let me, I, I agree, but uh, you, you just said before, the, the second point you made is that uh, interpersonal skills are more important. Well, we, you didn't say more important, but you, say, you said that we are hiring on, on technical skills and then we fire them because of interpersonal problems, right? Yep. Yeah, and, and then when you, when you put, this inter, put this phone call in front of uh, any other technical reviews, you're checking interpersonal skills also, right? Oh, yes. But at the same time, at the same time, you're saying uh, one of your articles on the blogs is saying that uh, most people, most managers are hiring uh, for comfort. That's what you said. So, and I I totally agree about that. So people are hiring not the best Java developers, not the best C++ developers, but they are hiring people who would be like them, who would just be, you know, a good cultural fit, a good interpersonal fit, but then they, they appear to be not the best C++ developers. Don't you see so, so here's the problem. Let me talk a little bit about cultural fit, and I'm going to rant and rave about this. A lot of people say, oh, this person doesn't fit the culture. And what they mean is this person didn't go to the same kind of a school that I went to. This person doesn't have the same kind of experience that I had. This person um, doesn't look like me. That's excuse me, nonsense. I was Mm going to say a different word. Um, But it's totally wrong. One of the best things you can do for your team is to create a diverse team, Um, men and women, people with a variety of experience, people with a variety of um, personality diversity. Right? If you only hire introverts, how are you going to have a really good conversation? Over email? No, the, if you hire at least one extrovert, and maybe only one, mm-hmm. um, everyone else can get angry at that person, and the introverts will actually talk. So I, I find that it's um, if you talk about cultural fit, it's too often shorthand for just like me, and that's total nonsense. 
just total nonsense. But when you call that people, when you pick up the phone and talk to them, you um, like not intent, intent, not by intention, but you do it. Uh, it, it just happens that you like some people and you don't like other people. And, sure. And you basically, and you, of course, you will like people who are like you, more or less, right? Uh, not necessarily. No? No. I mean, I like a lot of different people. Um, I might decide I'm not so sure um, that I want to work with all of them all the time, right? Because some people are agreeable and I, I find it easy to have a conversation with them. Some people are stuck on their own position. Uh, I, I might not like working with people like that. I might have to do a little more um, discovery, excuse me, discovery to see are these people somebody I can work with. Um, I, have, I have met a lot of people who are very, very interesting. And some of them were brilliant. And some of them, uh, even on the conversation, said, the only way to do something is this way. Well, I mean, you've read my stuff. I like to use the rule of three for any, almost any decision. If I hear somebody say, the only way to do something, I kind of wonder, is, does this person actually really have the depth of knowledge that I want? So um, I find that when I, when I have a conversation with people, I actually learn more about them during that conversation than they realize they are um, telling me. So there are two parts of a phone screen I really like. One is if you have... Um, an HR person do the dirtbag phone screen, right? Is this person going to be civil to the HR people? Is this a nice person? Do we even want somebody with these, with this kind of a personality on our team? So the dirtbag phone screen is a really good idea. And then there's the other phone screen where I'm, um, I'm looking for more technical skills, but because of the questions I ask, I actually find out a lot more about the person. So um, I find that this is much more professional than having somebody try and say, oh, we, we have a rubric and there's, um, we need to get three points here and 10 points there and some other nonsense like that. As if you could talk about creating a relationship with a robot. We, mm -hmm. one of the nice things about people is we are so non-deterministic. <laughs> so mm -hmm. why not take advantage of that and create teams that are like that? Mm -hmm. But you're in favor of meritocracy, right? Or not? Well, sort of. Um, I am in favor of finding the right people for the job. And I do want people to be paid properly. Um, I, I happen to like um, bands of, say, call it five or six levels of technical skill and that inside every level, people are paid according to their value. And if you have an agile team, my tendency is to say, pay everyone at level three about the same thing. Because I find that if you, if you look at what people were paid when they started a job, they actually either got lowballed or they started at 
some lower number because they came from a different industry or different company or something. I want to have parity for payment uh, across my organization. So in terms of, is that meritocracy? I don't know if it's meritocracy. Well, it sounds like no. it, but, but it depends on what we call a merit. My, my biggest concern is that if we pay attention to interpersonal skills, that may, we may have a situation when, for example, I am not really, for example, I am not really uh, a person who likes to communicate with people around me. I'm more like an introvert and I don't care about people around. And there's another programmer who is an extrovert, who makes friends, who is so open, who, com who communicates a lot. And then the management will, will see that as a merit in this person. And I will get oh. less money, less promotion, and he or she will get more and more. So that's not really merit. Well, it is meritocracy if the management thinks that it's a merit to be a, a good guy in the team. Yeah, see, that's, um, that's not understanding what the, what the different people provide to the team. So... I have never um, believed in the indispensable employee. I've always found that it's a much better idea to get rid of the indispensable employees because they're almost never indispensable and they almost always create problems in the team. Um, I, I am an extrovert, as I, I think you know, so I tend to talk in order, <laughs> in order to know what I'm thinking. And um, yes, I always got class participation medals, but that does not mean that the introverts have nothing useful to say. I find that it's much more valuable for me to be able to make space for introverts to, to think for just a few seconds and then talk and, and explain what they're doing so or what they're thinking, I should say. Um, any manager who does not understand that is not really managing the environment which is yeah, the role of a manager true. but there are so many bad i mean unprofessional managers around well yeah so the question is what can we recommend to our listeners who i think most of them are actually introverts or programmers are basically listening to us now <clears throat> and the, what can we recommend them to become uh, to to work on their interpersonal skills and to become more extrovert or to focus on java c++ and technical skills so what's the right direction so for me, the right direction is always to continue to work on your interpersonal skills. An introvert is not going to become an extrovert. An extrovert is not going to become an introvert. But you can, you can work on your interpersonal skills and understand how can I provide coaching if, if the other person wants it? How can I provide and receive feedback? Because feedback is a necessary part of those interpersonal skills. How can I frame what I'm thinking so that other people can understand me. How can I listen to other people's ideas before I'm ready to talk to them? So there's all these interpersonal skills which take a lot of concentration, a lot of, of depth of knowledge. And yes, you do want to continue working on your, your C and your, your Java, whatever, whatever kind of skills you want. But all of those skills are in the context of a team, whether or not it's an agile team. So how can you help the team do better? Mm -hmm. And what do you think about remote teams? There are more and more people are working now from their homes and they don't really communicate to each other in the office. So these teams are more becoming more virtual and, 
maybe the, the very idea of the team is changing. So maybe this interpersonal skills in the future will, be, uh, will look differently. Well, I think it will. I'm actually working on a geographically distributed Agile Teams book right now with Mark Kilby. And mm -hmm. he and I both have a lot of experience working with and as a part of distributed Agile Teams. And uh, we keep coming back. We just wrote an aside this morning that said interpersonal skills are mm -hmm. critically important. So how you collaborate on a geographically distributed team might even work better for introverts because a lot of times there's a back channel in slack or some other kind of uh, um Crazy some cool. kind of a messaging system right so aside from email aside from slack aside from um, how you get together with meetings. I use Zoom a lot for my geographically distri distributed teams, and I find that it works really well. So what tools do you need to enhance collaboration? And for me, that's really the question. I find that collaboration, software is a collaborative game. Right. Anytime you want to develop a software product, you're playing a collaborative game. And there's learning involved as you develop it. And it's not just personal learning, how you use a given tool or how you learn a language, but what you learn about the product. And if you're going to do any learning, you have to bring everybody else with you. Mm -hmm. So we will still need that interpersonal skills, no matter how fast is going to be the internet, how, you know, how, how remote we are, right? Oh, I think we need them even more when we're virtual. But, but these cultural conflicts, as far as I understand now, when teams are more distributed, people are coming from different cultures than they were before. And this inter, intercultural, between cultural conflicts are becoming more uh, visible because like years ago we were all sitting together in the same country the same city the same town in the same street so it was we, we were from the same culture now we have somebody from Australia another person from Brazil and and they are completely different culture wise so looks like we're gonna have more problems in the future uh, than we had before so this is the manager's job right the manager is the creator of the environment for the team. And the corporate culture, or at least the team culture, is, in Ed Shine's words, what people can discuss, how they treat each other, and how, how they are rewarded. So if you address that for the entire team, right, mm -hmm. that everyone can discuss everything, or, or there are bounds on what they can discuss, and if you talk about how people treat each other, maybe you say, we want everyone to, to give and receive feedback, and coaching is up to you, but we have to be able to have enough transparency with our feedback. Um, and what was the third one? Um, oh, what, what we pay people. So if we reward for overtime, we will get overtime. Yeah. But we might not get throughput. Right. This is this is a mistake a lot of managers used to make before Agile, and to be honest, too few teams practice sustainable pace. So we get what we reward, and the manager is almost always in charge of the rewards and how people treat each other and how we work together. So mm -hmm. 
the managers can create the team culture. Yes, everybody comes from their own culture. And we have a lot of conceptions and misconceptions about where everybody's culture brings them. So I'm from the U.S. We have the culture of the American cowboy. Um, you know, cowboy programming started here, and I don't think it's done yet. <laughs> and we, we also have cultures that are much more group-oriented. Um, I, I believe that India is one of those. And we have cultures that have almost, almost no respect for authority, um, and Israel and the Scandinavian countries are like that. Not mm. in Israel, it's a little bit different. In Israel, they'll actually tell you to your face that you're full of nonsense. Mm. In Scandinavia, they often just it's smile. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yes, we have cultural stamps from where we are, but that does not mean that we cannot create our team culture. And that's really important. So you're saying that we have to pay more attention to resolve that conflicts and stay in the area of interpersonal um, troubles and issues and solutions, or we should try to stay away from that area and just focus on technical relationship, like saying, you know, I don't care where you're coming from. I don't care what you think about authority, what your culture is. Like, this is the job. This is the task. Just complete the task, get paid, and, and, and that's it. Or we need to, like, you see, you see the problem, right? We can either train people to be good to each other, to be nice and work with that and, and resolve their interpersonal <laughs> conflict, or we, just, we can just ignore that and say, you know, we're all equal to us. We don't care where you're coming from. Like, these are the tasks. Focus on them. And, and that's it. So let me offer a third option. Okay. <laughs> which is to say that we build our interpersonal skills while we work on the work. Uh-huh. All right, so my experience is we cannot say we're all just about the work because we're human and we do human stuff. Yeah. And we can't just say, oh, let me be touchy-feely. I mean, you've read my stuff. When have I actually looked like I'm touchy-feely? Right? I'm, I'm not particularly touchy-feely. I'm a pretty hard-boiled egg. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we need to take our best selves to work and so in order to take our best selves to work, we have to work on how we work with each other. How do we take work? How do we talk about the work? How do we um, express our disagreements? How do we express our agreements? Mm -hmm. How do we do all of this stuff? There is not one right way. Uh, there yeah. are a number of wrong ways, which is, you know, I'm the lead architect, therefore I know well. Well, that's total nonsense, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the lead architect cannot possibly know all. So how, how do we use our best selves to actually work at work? Mm -hmm. That's my thing. And I don't think that it's in either or. I, I am not a kumbaya person. I don't want to have a touchy-feely conversation. I, I, I want to know how were people's weekends because I want to be able to make that small talk before the meeting. That's how you build relationships. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to be their mother confessor or, or, their, or their mother at work. I have two children. That's enough. I don't need any more. So I, I don't. I don't I want to I want people to know I'm interested in them because I am interested in them mm -hmm. but I I'm not 
I want to keep that interest as much as possible to the work. So I don't, I don't want to hear about their mother-in-law problems unless that impinges on their work. Right. So I want to, I want to have a relationship, but I don't want to, I want to put bounds on that relationship if at all possible so that I can keep all of us focused on the work and, and yet that we have a relationship with each other so that we can say, Oh, you're having a tough day. Cause I can hear your bronchitis, right? Mm -hmm. Can you actually work today? Mm -hmm. I don't see how we can separate that from the work. Got it. Okay, and uh, the number three, the point number three, actually the point number one you mentioned is that uh, people are too generic in their skills, and that's that's a problem. Did I get it right? So people are trying so to... It, well, it's more like we want um, 25 years of Java and, and four <laughs> years of CSS and 10 years of this and 14 years of that, and, and by the time you're done with all of those, all of that list, it's not possible for one human to, to actually do all of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe it is too generic. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I what, do thought of it general, as, what do you think in general about uh, like people who are experts in many areas versus uh, narrow specialists, which are like focused on one particular language, one particular technology? What do you think is the future? Because as well, yeah, I want to know your opinion first. <laughs> so I, I am in favor of generalizing specialists. Uh -huh. So um, back when I was a programmer many, many years ago, I was really at the platform or middleware level. Um, I, I, could, I could kind of bounce up to the UI, but I was not very good at the UI. Um, I, still, I still can break UIs with the best of them because I don't think the way UI people think, and maybe that's, that's a helpful thing and maybe it's not, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. All I know is that I really like the operating system. I really like all of the, the stuff that actually talks to hardware. To me, that's, I am at home there, mostly because that's where I started. Um, and I, I also happen to like middleware, which is um, the underneath the API and underneath the GUI. So, that's where I come from. When I work on a, uh, on a cross-functional team, I, I tend to work now more as a coach and I, I don't do any professional programming or testing anymore these days. Mm -hmm. But as a coach, I need to be able to work with everybody on the team. And I find that the people who are capable of moving up and down the stack, both for development and testing, Right, I'm talking about everybody on a team, that the more they have the capability to move up and down the stack, the better off the team is. The more capable the team is of, of finishing features and getting the features out to the customers. So um, have I met people who have really focused on one technology and one industry and one language? Of course. Um, my my concern, and this was my concern back when I was looking for jobs as an employee, is that I did not want to get um, put into a little box. Because any time that little box squishes, um, you have no more jobs. So I met a, a woman 
many years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, who told me she was a COBOL programmer. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, so you're a programmer. She said, no, I'm a COBOL programmer. And I said, how long have you been unemployed? She said, six months. I said, how many interviews have you gone on? She said, two. Mm -hmm. I said, that is some data. Have you actually taken that data in? She said, I'm a COBOL programmer. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't, you can't make people think. So do I, do I want people who jump technologies every six months? That might be a little too often. And my, my experience for me was I needed to be in a technology for a good 12 to 18 months before I really, I feel, before I really felt I had mastered it. So, mm. and there are some people who would say, hey, JR, you have not mastered Lisp. And they would probably be right. So um, I think it's really important to say, what kind of mastery do I want to learn at this job so that I can, I can be of the most value to my company and take away the most value for myself? Yeah, that makes sense. But if you look at that from a different, a little bit different view, uh, different different angle, you will see that the, the amount of technologies now is like growing every year. So we have more languages, we have more paradigms, we have more tools, frameworks, everything. It's not like 20 years ago when, well, I don't know what exactly we had 20 years ago, but now it's growing and growing. We like, we have a lot of them. And it's so difficult for people to really, like you said, to really uh, dive deeper into one technology and stay there for like a few, a few months. That's not enough. You need to spend a year or two or three before you become some kind of an expert in, in, in one framework. So if people really like want to have a lot of the tools in their, in their toolbox, then it's almost impossible. So what I see on the market is that people are trying to touch every single technology a little bit and then they come back with a resume where it says i know and then the huge list of technologies and databases and everything and it only tells me that that person is not really an expert in anything because, right because it's uh, the list of technologies is so huge so that's what i feel don't you i i happen to agree with you mm -hmm. i think it's more valuable to you as a as a person who might want a job at some point to say, I want to learn how to do this thing and then focus on that for a while. And if you realize you're not really that interested in that particular thing, then it's okay. Go on to something else. But give yourself a chance to really understand and use this. I, I'm not sure why people um, think, well, I know why. So the automated, the applicant tracking systems are a disease. And okay almost every large company uses one and the problem is they all look for keywords like all of these technologies yeah. and 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 that allows the hiring manager to say um, this technology and this technology right they have 10 or 11 technologies which is stupid so uh, yeah i um yeah, I agree. Totally. So the managers are not stupid, but the managers are used to think that the more items, the more keywords you have on your resume, the better you are. I think yes. that's kind of an old mentality or something. Very old. Well, yeah. I'm not sure it was ever a good mentality, but it's not useful now. 
Yeah, totally. And if we're talking about, okay, I'm done with the questions about problems, now my questions which I prepare. So what do you think? Uh, I have a number of things which I pay attention when people come to me and I hire them. And uh, a few of them I'm interested to know your opinion. The first one is uh, location. So let's say I'm looking for a Java developer and then two people are coming to me. One is from San Francisco, another one is from uh, Indonesia. And they are at the same level. So they are good Java developers, the quality of, I, I interview them both, they're the same level technical wise. But the San Francisco person charges $100 an hour and an Indonesian guy uh, charges me $15 an hour. So that's an obvious, uh, you know, obvious uh, difference and the difference is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I'm saying is that uh, it's kind of, I, I would hire the cheapest one, obviously, because I don't want to pay for your San Francisco expenses because that's kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, unfair to me as a business. I want Java developer. I don't want San Francisco Java developer or Indonesian Java developer. I just want Java developer. Which territory you choose to live in it's up to you, but what I care about is your skills and your rate. So what do you think about that? Because a lot of people criticize me for that. So I think you're missing one very big question. Where's the rest of the team? Well, okay, so two questions. And how long does it take to ask a question and get it answered? So remember that wage cost is not project cost. So, and I, I don't know where your team is. I don't know how many time zones you have, but I have discovered that more than about four time zones and that um, in a given team, the, the longer it takes to ask and answer questions. That increases the project time and increases the project cost. Mm -hmm. If you have everybody else in San Francisco, I would recommend, or on the West Coast, right, in, mm -hmm. in this, same time zone I would recommend and if assuming that the two people are equivalent it's hard to say that we have equivalents but let's just go for an assumption I would say hire the person in the same time zone as all the other people because mm -hmm. you will have much less time gap be between answering a question and getting it answered uh, I should say asking a question and getting an answer. Remember, mm -hmm. software is collaborative. It, it doesn't matter if you use Agile or not. It's all collaborative. So how do we reduce the collaboration friction and increase the collaboration time? Now, mm -hmm. if you have everybody else in Indonesia, I don't even know what, what time zone Indonesia is, um, but if you have everybody else there, then sure keep hire that person mm -hmm. what, but, if, what if the time zone is not a concern like let's say i'm staying in, in in europe somewhere so it's between san francisco and indonesia so i don't really care about the time zone all i care about is just the question is should the business pay for for the so you know huge expenses of the person who is staying who who, who happen happens to stay in san francisco for some reason because basically like the the majority of the money we're going to pay that person will go for the coverage of the expenses there and obviously because the apartment is expensive living costs are expensive everything so should the business pay for all of that or the business should say you know it's your problem move to indonesia and then come back to us <laughs> so what is the relative value of each person? 
They're equal. I mean, they're, yeah, they're equal. Well, I, I find it hard to believe that they're actually equal. Oh. So um, what about it? What about these two developers made you think that they're equal? If they're really equal, yeah, go with the cheaper guy. Um, mm -hmm. But, oh, and guy for me is generic. Yeah. But I, I found that it's often not equal. So you were saying that the person living in San Francisco actually has some merits which may be not that visible on the resume, but there, there are definitely something there, right? Or possibly the person in, in Indonesia has more merits. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to say what's important to us as a company that we have in this team. Because mm -hmm. it's not just the technical skills. It's often the interpersonal skills. Interpersonal. Maybe the guy in, in, in Indonesia has better interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. Maybe the guy in San Francisco has better skills. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I, I find it very hard to believe that, um, that, that their skills are actually equivalent over all of the skills and that the time zone does not make a difference. So in Europe, um, how many time zones is it? to Indonesia like six so. okay oh so it oh so Europe is in the middle so it yeah, might be six or seven yeah. east and then San Francisco would be well yeah. that would be nine right yeah something like yeah. that yeah so I um if I if I did not have people that many time zones west I would be quite reluctant to hire somebody that many time zones west mm -hmm. So you really pay that much attention to the time zone difference. How else can we, how else can we collaborate? So mm -hmm. let me tell you a story about the worst team I ever heard. Um, yeah. I actually was a coach for this team. This is before Agile approaches. Um, we had a tester, one tester in India. We had developers in Israel. We had a developer in, in France and the UK. I think it was two people in Israel, one in France, one in the UK, and then the the equivalent of the product owner was in California. Mm -hmm. That team could never get anything done. They couldn't find a, a time when everybody was awake to meet. So the, the cost of, of understanding the requirements was very high. The cost of asking a question was very high. Um, senior management had decided to hire people in India for testing because they would quote save money but the poor guy in India never had any idea what he was supposed to do <laughs> um, it was it was a horrible thing one of my interventions was actually going to senior management and showing them the value stream I said mm -hmm. here is the here is the path that once you go from requirement to finish work, here's how it works. And here are all the delays. Mm -hmm. You are not saving any money by having this poor guy in India. And he had even come, where did he go to? I think he went to Israel. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe everybody came out to California. I don't remember. But they had gotten the whole team together. And when, when they were together, they actually worked really well. Mm -hmm. But once they went back to their homes, it was a disaster. Yeah, I think one of the articles I read on your blog was saying that offshoring doesn't mean cheap in all the cases. No. Right? Yeah. No. That's exactly the case. 
Okay, makes sense. And the next question is, uh, what do you think about uh, age? So there's a number of articles again on your blog about this aging problem. Uh, I'm also not, you know, not a young programmer, so I'm over 40. And yeah, and I, and I feel that, again, it's my personal feeling is that uh, younger programmers, they are now getting uh, more jobs and uh, companies like them more because they are so energetic, they're so ready to catch new technologies, they, they are ready to risk uh, their time and all that stuff. So what do you think about that situation? Should we, should we really pay attention to younger programmers or like we did like 20 years ago, we should hire more uh, senior guys and more uh, seasoned persons? So I'm a big fan of having a wide range of ages in in the organization. You want people who understand how to work, right? You, under, you want people who understand how do you release product. Um, too often, the younger programmers do not know that. They do not have the seasoning. And think about how long it takes you to learn something new. So the more often you have to learn something new, the better you are at learning. So if you're a year, if you're in your first five years out of school, I, my, my experience, which is not universal, is that it takes longer to learn something because you don't know how to learn. Mm -hmm. My experience is that once you're in, say, five to 20 years out of school, you have, you have figured out how to learn and you are more and more valuable because of all of your experience. Now, what I often find is that, um, that companies want to hire really young people because they will cost less and work more. Yeah. Really young people tend not to have families. Really young people are coming um, reasonably close from school where all of their job was to go to school. So they worked whenever. Um, I, I have found that this is also very short-sighted. One of my clients, I have stories, sorry. Um, one of my clients hired um, two kinds of people. They hired the bottom of the barrel older people, people who did not have successful experience because they were cheap, and they hired brand new kids out of school um, every single year. And they, they, they had a, um, a turnover rate of about 25%. And the worst part was, the old stupid people stayed and the bright young people left. Hmm. Right. So they had people who were not capable of teaching these bright young people what to do in, in, their, in the product. And the bright young people, because they were so young and half of them were women and half of them were men, um, didn't get any traction with these old people because they had all hired from the bottom of the barrel. Oh. Mm -hmm. I actually explained to, to the management what it cost them to release their product. And if they had only, if they, if they would stop hiring the bottom of the barrel, right? Because it took them so long to release anything that, again, the wage cost was not the project cost. Mm -hmm. uh, we get so stuck in, this is all a function of resource efficiency. This is the idea that if you... Um, if you break everything down as if software was widgets and we have a widget from this guy and a widget from that guy and a widget from this guy, again, guys are all generic. We can somehow put them all together and have a product. 
That's not how software works. So if you cheap out on salaries, um, you often get what you pay for. You get a project that takes a lot longer with a lot more risk, and you're not able to deliver the product when you want to. So understanding the, the dynamics of software development is, or I should say software product development, is really important. This is, oh, people are, they're so stuck in their, uh, in their beliefs about software and management. <laughs> That is very hard to talk them off the off the ledge. Yeah. So you're actually in favor of a mix of ages. Did I get it right? I am. I believe that older and younger people can mentor each other, can coach each other, uh -huh. and why not have people who have experience in getting products at the door? One of the things I used to look for back in the eighties and the nineties was experience shipping. Right, because I had been using uh, stage delivery lifecycle, which says um, do a little bit of, of requirements up front, do a little bit of architecture up front, then work by feature set so you could release at any time. Because I always discovered, you know, halfway through the project they would want to release. So I organized the projects like that. And I, I hired people who had experience releasing. Because otherwise, they didn't meet the release criteria. They didn't know what done means. They didn't know any of that stuff. And mm -hmm. when I when I hired for that, I actually found that people had worked in companies for five and six years, and their products had never released. Huh. These might have been really good people, but I the risk for me was too high. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have to agree here again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next, the next uh, thing which is interesting, uh, what do you think about uh, open source uh, contribution and in general of passion people may have for, on, for open source or some of them may not have that? Because in a few of my articles I said that uh, I value that. So when people come to me and they show me that they actually are active contributors to, you know, public projects and open projects and projects where nobody paid them for that, but they still write code for, for the public, then for me as an employer, it means a lot. It means that they're passionate about software development. But some people were saying to me that uh, I'm not writing anything for free. I'm not writing any public code, but I'm still a good engineer. I'm still a good expert. So what do you think about this in general, this passion people may have or may not? So I would ask them what they've learned instead or what they've read because I have found that people with small children, people with older parents, people with dogs, people who like vacations don't necessarily contribute to open source. So I was a programmer once, way before we had open source. And... <laughs> I read a ton about my craft, right? Mm -hmm. I bought books on my own with my own money. I read magazines, um, anything from software development magazine or to uh, communications of the ACM to IEEE. So I read a lot. I tried things. I would never have contributed to open source. At the time, I was bicycling. I bicycled. Um, from March through October, 
and I bicycled inside and um, worked out at the gym the -hmm. rest of the year because I wanted to be able to take my bicycling vacations. Mm -hmm. I know I have vertigo now. I don't take bicycling vacations. Mm -hmm. And when I met my husband, we skied. I was very busy doing activities outside. Mm -hmm. Why would I have stayed inside doing any more? That, to me, I think you're totally wrong. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it. You're totally wrong. You are discriminating for middle, um, young, middle economy, um, white men, people Mm -hmm. who have no other interests. Do you really want those people? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. So you're saying. Yeah, because you would have been better served with having somebody like me. (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying that people have different interests they are in general are better experts and better professionals right i think that it's hard for me to say one way or the other but Mm. i think that if you ask the question how have you built your expertise over the year Mm -hmm. that would be a really interesting question because you might find that people like me said i read these books and I've been trying stuff at work with my team. Mm-hmm. Now, how valuable is that to you rather than working on an open source project with people who are strangers? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more valuable, maybe it's less. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, I think you're looking for the learning, not the activity. Mm-hmm. No, may makes sense. Thanks for that. <laughs> Okay, and the last one, which is also interesting, is uh, some kind of formal degrees like certifications, education, some papers which people are bringing to their employers and showing them. And some people now are saying that it's it's absolutely not important. And I I remember one of the articles on your blog as well, you were questioning that, like whether it's important to to show this formal uh, diplomas or maybe it's time to say no to all of that and just value the person by the skills they have in their hands. So what do you think? Can you evaluate that? Okay. So let me talk about the difference between a diploma and a certification. Mm -hmm. A diploma says you went to at least two years, possibly four or six or eight to get a degree from an accredited university or college. Mm -hmm. That's a diploma. A certificate says you went to a two-day class and you did the secret handshake and the fist bump at the end and you paid attention. Mm-hmm. Now, which one is more important for you? Now, let me discriminate against uh, also between the PMI certs, which I do not have any of, and the Scrum Alliance and the ad- and uh, Scrum.org and all this other nonsense for certifications. Um, <laughs> The PMI certifications actually ask for experience doing something. Now, I have, plenty, I have plenty of bones to pick with the PMI, but they're looking for experience, not just a two to four day class. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Scrum Alliance and Scrum.org and um, all this other stuff, it's all about the class that you went to. Now, I happen to think that learning is really important. I value learning over almost anything else. So if you tell me that you learned this kind of thing and that kind of thing for your certification, I'm actually impressed. I will tell you that I have been to PMI 
um, conferences where um, the presenter asked, how many in the room have PMPs, which is a project management professional certification? Um, every hand except for me went up. And mm -hmm. how many people understand about Marco scheduling? My hand went up. <laughs> Nobody else's. Now, I don't understand how you can schedule a project without understanding plus and minus. I don't get it. So, okay. So, that's the PMI. Now, let me take on all these Agile certifications. Uh, by the way, I don't know anything about the Microsoft or the Cisco's or anything like that. I only know about the Agile certifications from Scrum and uh, the two varieties of Scrum. You go to a two-day class, and in safety, you go to a four-day class, and you listen to all this PowerPoint, and maybe you play a Lego game, and maybe you try and move a baseball from one thing to another. You never touch code. Hmm. How can you possibly understand what it means to be a scrum master or a product owner if you don't touch code? I just don't get it. Now, is the content in those classes valuable? I have to believe it is. Can you be a master of anything? Can you be certified as anything if you have not had any experience? I don't see how. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my high horse about certifications. Well, I agree again. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, I have one more question, uh, which is um, a kind of provocative, but still I want to ask it. Uh, what do you think about this tendency uh, that some companies right now are trying to go for and open and make their salaries open so that everybody in the team, they start to know how much everybody is making in the team? I've, I've read about that companies, some of them are from the Silicon Valley, some of them from Europe. So they're like saying, like, look, their salaries are even published on the website. So people know how much we're making and how much is the CTO is making, how much is the programmer is making. So what do you think? Is it the right movement or, or not? Let me tell you a story about my very first job. Okay. I was hired by, at the time the company was called GTE Sylvania, it's now General Dynamics. I had assembly language experience. I had been paid to write code before. I had a BS in computer science. I made $13,200 a year. This mm -hmm. is in 1977. Mm -hmm. I got my first raise. I was up to 16.6. I was over the moon. I thought I was making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I talked to my, my friend who had a BA in math, had never been paid um, to write anything professionally before he started to work. And he was a guy. He's, his starting salary was 15 2 uh -huh. He got a raise to 17 5 uh -huh. I felt totally cheated. I went to my boss and I said, you need to pay me as, at least as much as this guy is getting paid because, first of all, my stuff works. And secondly, I had the experience. And thirdly, I don't, this is discrimination. Mm -hmm. He said, I gave you the highest raise I could give you. I cannot get you to parity until next year. I said, I'm not going to be here next year unless you get me to parity now. He said, but you're so valuable. I said, then prove it. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So 
I gave them a month. Supposedly, they were in management meetings and they were talking and HR, quote, didn't let them do it, end of quote. I left and I got a job for 18.5 or 18.6 or something. We're talking about 1978. I happen to think that publishing your, your bands for what the different jobs are, the expertise criteria, and the salary ranges for that expertise criteria is an excellent idea. Uh -huh. I think it's very scary for the senior managers because they would have to publish their jobs and their bands. In a public company, all of that stuff, um, all the senior managers' salaries are published, I believe, in the K-1 or whatever it's called. And why shouldn't we know what the salary bands are for our range, right? Why, why shouldn't we know if we're a senior engineer what the salary band is? Um, I happen to think that this is a great idea. It takes all the discussion about salary and parity off the table. Instead, it puts the onus on the employee and the manager talking together about a career path. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the valuable conversation. Um, instead of this stupid parody conversation, you, you might not have ever experienced this. Every single job I've had, I have experienced this. Every single employee job I've had. And mm -hmm. I've actually been a consultant. And some senior manager guy said to me, you know, I might pay you that if you were a man. Really? I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't have a penis. So you'll have to pay me for my more valuable internal organs than the <laughs> external thing that you are thinking with. He did not like that, but I felt so much better. Um, and, and one of the other senior managers in the room blushed and said, oh, my God, I can't believe we're having this conversation. I said, he brought it up. <laughs> I, mean, I okay that was not one of my more mature conversations I actually did get the job and the senior manager apologized to me later so I gotta tell you I I find all of this discussion about salary ranges with the bands of responsibility right the career ladder very helpful takes all this secrecy off the table we can now discuss it we can say here's what makes you valuable here are the things you're missing let's well, let's talk about that that's true absolutely but the story you just gave us actually proves uh, not proves but but demonstrates the opposite problem for the management because if you were if you were not aware of that salary of your friend you would not have that conversation with the management and you would still stay in that company. So because you, you found out what the salary of that guy is or were, then you started a conversation and that's why all the trouble started. So, <laughs> Oh, people always find out. Yeah. People always find out. Sure. You have, if you don't have a best friend at the company or somebody you can talk to, you can say, how much was your raise? Did you get one and a half percent or one percent? And then the other person says, I got three percent. Mm -hmm. Well, why did you get three? What was your starting salary? I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. People always find this out. <laughs> you can't keep it a secret. Yeah, but some companies, they even put the line in the contract that you're oh. not allowed to. Oh, yeah, yeah, 
yeah, they that. put a line in the contract. It's totally unenforceable. Uh-huh. All right. Well, so I agree you again. You always yeah. find this out. Yeah. I also think so. But that's really, like you said, that's really dangerous for the management because they, they will feel insecure if the entire team has this information in public and open then the manager is in trouble. I mean, may get into trouble because the manager sometimes assigns that salary without any, you know, obvious reasons. They just, like you said, here's the, he's the guy, he's the, he's the girl. Okay, this salary is going to be bigger and this one is smaller for no particular reason, for no any other reason except this you know, gender. Right. So that's why I, I really like career ladders with bands at each, at each level of the ladder. And then you don't have to have that conversation. You can have a conversation about what would it take for you to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. If all the managers would listen to you, that would be a better world. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, I have no more questions. I, I would definitely recommend our listeners to check your books. I will post the link to the books and to your blog and everything. And uh, maybe in the future, we'll see you again for another subject because you definitely write not only about hiring, but about agile, about management, project management. So I would highly recommend our readers to check your writings. Well, thank you so much. I, I love this and I would, I would come on with you at any time. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye.